in the middle of the night at 80 years old. No. This never comes out of his mouth. It's a soul. No. It's a can't. A can't. Now, before I go any further, let me just wonder something out loud. Can I wonder something out loud for just a minute? I wonder what we would do if God answered our prayers. I wonder what, he would, what we would do if he rained down on us the revival that we have prayed for. I wonder what we would do if he filled the baptistry and these seats with new believers and all the kids that come with them. I wonder what we would do if a spirit of reconciliation would fall on our city as we have prayed for. I wonder what we would do if everybody suddenly decided to stop playing nice and come to the table and start hashing out the long and painful racial history of this county and begin the long and painful work of reconciliation. I wonder what we would do with all those extra kids upstairs I wonder what we would do with all their parents that need to be discipled. I wonder how we feel about going to all these extra meetings when the Lord is moving. I wonder how we would feel all the while when folks are flooding the altar and being prayed for and being healed of diseases. This is what we prayed for, addictions. And the Spirit just keeps falling on us as we have prayed in this very room for hours and hours and weeks on end. I wonder how we would feel if God answered our prayers. What would we do if he broke our routine into a million pieces by giving us what we ask for? Now, if we're being honest, you're all sitting there saying, well, it's a good thing because that ain't going to happen. I'm not sure I even believe in that stuff. That's impossible. Why not? That kind of stuff happens all the time in here, right? That kind of stuff is happening in churches all over this country, all over the world. Why wouldn't it happen here? Maybe. Because somebody out there is saying yes like Mary. And we might be saying no like Zechariah. Not no out of our mouth. But a soul no. It says that's impossible. Because we would say, how is that supposed to come to pass in us? I'm afraid that this is what I would say. I'll be honest with you. Because I have these thoughts. How is this supposed to, how, how am I? I'm the pastor here. How am, I'm not ready for this. I'm not the guy for handling that kind of situation. I'm a small church pastor. I never finished seminary. I'm just an art teacher who got delusional and started a church. How is this supposed to come to pass in me? See, none of, none of that is a direct no. But my soul has said no. My soul has said, I'm not that guy. You've got the wrong person. That's not who I am. See, that's an identity issue, isn't it? 
that soul know. And the funny thing happens when the soul of a Christian person says no to God in situations like this. Funny things happen even to faithful, pious people when their soul says no to to God about who they are and what they are to be put in their hands to. We see this in our passage today. We're going to outline real quickly three things that happen to Zechariah when he says no. So uh, just if you're a note taker, what happens when your soul says no? First of all, it becomes difficult for you to, it becomes increasingly difficult for you to perceive spiritual realities. The more you say no. Look at the first part of verse 19. What, what, what does Gabriel say in response to Zechariah's response? Zechariah says, how is this supposed to be fulfilled in me? How can I know this is going to come to pass? I'm an old man. What is Gabriel's response? I am Gabriel. Who do you think you're talking to? I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you the words of God. It's almost as if he said, Zechariah, you're the priest. Do you have no idea who you're dealing with? Now, when it matters, do you have any idea who you're dealing with? I heard once that toxic stress hardens. It actually changes the physiology in your brain, and it hardens the pathways from, um, towards flight or fight right, the fight or flight re- reflex. And so the more toxic stress that you're kind of exposed to, the quicker you go to fight or flight. And, and over time, when you have those things applied to you over and over again, those pathways in your brain start to harden up, physically harden up, so that you go faster and faster. And so it's very difficult for you to respond appropriately in another situation that doesn't require fight or flight. And in that same way, I think when we say these that's not possible. That's not who I am, God. That's not what, you know, that's, that's not who I am. That there's pathways in our soul that start to harden up a little bit. And it's harder for us to respond appropriately when God breaks the routine, when God steps in, when God says something, when God says move, when God says, no, this is who you are in me. I, you, are my, you are my child. Nah, that's not who I am. I go there. Because those pathways are hardened up. The problem with sin is that it, deaden, it, it closes our spiritual eyes. And so we're only seeing half of reality when our spiritual senses are closed off. We're only seeing the physical. The physical is real, but the spiritual is every bit as real. And in order to perceive the total of reality, we need to be able to open that third eye, that spiritual eye. And that's what Jesus allows us to do. But when we say no, that process is slowed down. And that eye starts to shut more and more. So it becomes difficult for us to perceive spiritual realities. And I want to emphasize that word reality. Gabriel is making a statement of reality. Zechariah, I'm Gabriel. I'm the angel of the Lord. I stand in his presence and I'm coming to tell you, right? That's a spiritual reality that Zechariah is having trouble perceiving. A second thing that happens when we say a soul no to the Lord over and over again is it becomes difficult for us to receive good news as good news. Here's the problem with the good news. 
of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that he died for our sins and then he rose in victory over that death. That's the good news, right? And if we believe on him, we receive his life. He takes our death and we receive his life. That's good news. The first part of that good news is death on a cross. Good news ain't fun news. Good news, not easy news. Good news, not sit down and have a good time news. Good news, not you won the lottery, you know, watch TV news. Good news is tough news. And we are given a cross, and we must take up our cross and follow him, right? On the road. We are given a cross. That's part of the good news. If we're going to follow Jesus. And so like Jesus, we have to set our face like a flint to Jerusalem and go to the cross for what? For the joy set before him. Because on the other side of this cross is resurrection and life. Right? That's a part of our good news. We cannot, the, 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 the student cannot experience something deep, different than the master they follow. This is a part of what good news is. The angel says to Zechariah, you're not, I'm bringing you good news. But you've already decided you're an old man. You've already decided you're done with that kind of crazy stuff, right? You've already decided that's not going to come to pass in my life. All those prayers that I pray, that's not going to come to pass. You've already made up your mind about God. You made up your mind about who you are. You're not hearing any of that. I'm trying to tell you good news. Good news is disruptive, right? It changes your plans. It disrupts routines. It changes your identity. It changes who you are. When you find the pearl of great price and it's hidden in this little field and you go to cash and liquidate all your assets and cash in all of your savings and your 401k and everything else, you don't think that somebody's going to be following you all the way back when you go to attempt to pay for this stupid little field out there that has nothing in it going, you're an idiot. You're an idiot. You're an idiot. You're throwing your money down a hole. Right? The good news is that there's a treasure out there. There's a treasure out there. And so our, somewhere between selling all that stuff off to buy that pearl of great price, we come up with a lot of reasons not to a lot of times. And that's what Zechariah does. That's what Moses does at the burning bush. He starts going down the list. I can't talk. I can't speak. I'm not the guy right? I'm not the one. You got the wrong person. Zechariah does the same thing. I'm old. Look at me. I'm not the one. You've got the wrong person. So we begin to rattle off those responses. As we say no more and more like that, it becomes easier and easier, and it's difficult for us to receive the good news as good news. We'd rather just have Things the way they are. Thirdly, and this is powerful, I think, it becomes difficult to carry out your ministry. We have gone through a, a period as a church where we've tried to say what the Bible teaches us is that every member is a minister. 
It's not the people that are up here. It's not the people with the microphone. It's, not, it's all of us. All of us have a ministry. We are a priesthood, the Bible says. All of us. And we all have a ministry. And I find it interesting that the consequences of Zechariah's no, did you notice that? Are what? He's made mute. He can't speak. If we look over in verse 62, uh, at the, and we'll talk more about this in just a minute, we see that other people are gesturing to him to try to communicate to him, so it might be that he was struck mute and deaf, but at least mute. Now, 1 Chronicles 23.13 says this about what priests are supposed to do. Aaron was set apart and his descendants forever are set apart to consecrate the most holy things, to offer sacrifices before the Lord, to minister before the Lord, and to pronounce blessings over the people in his name forever. So all of those things require that he speak. How's he going to pronounce blessings over the people, a man that can't speak? Now, this is his identity. This is who he feels like he is. This is his ministry. And saying no, a soul no in this moment, clogs up the effectiveness of his ministry. And I, I, I tend to think of this more of a natural consequence than just a punishment. Saying no to God stops up our ability to minister. How is it that we expect him to keep speaking to others through us when we won't allow him to speak to us? How is it that we expect him to change the lives of others through us when we won't allow him to change our life? I heard, <clears throat> when I thought about this, I think this is a very interesting thing. And I thought about myself and I thought about all of us. As we continue trying, Zechariah has no plans to not do religious stuff, you know? This is who he is. He's a priest. And I wonder if we're kind of limping along here in our ministries. And the power of our ministries has not manifested itself because we haven't even realized that we're saying a soul no to God in a lot of ways. Just things that are, that's not me. That's impossible. That's just not who I am. So I think that the soul no kind of hardens these pathways in us. We get used to it, and it becomes difficult for us to perceive spiritual realities. It becomes difficult to receive good news as good news. It becomes difficult to carry out our ministry effectively. Does it have to be this way? The answer is absolutely not. There is a cure for the soul no. You know what it is? It's a soul yes. The soul no doesn't have to be final. It can be cured easily. Turn over, if you would, <clears throat> in this same chapter. Skip over to verse 57. This is when Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, is going to have the baby. Boy, that was really... Loud. It says, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared in her joy. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him 
after his father Zechariah, but his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. And then they made signs to Zechariah to find out what he would like to name the child. And he asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. And everyone who heard about this wondered about it, asking, What is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. So, we know what happens with John the Baptist. We know that he walks in this identity that was prophesied to Zechariah on, the, on that day when the angel visited him. And that, doubtless, had a lot to do with Zechariah's raising of his son and Elizabeth's raising of, his, of their son in their old age, where they'd never expected to be parents. They never expected that identity. They received it. They said, yes. Zechariah says, yes. His name is John. And in that moment, these pathways get dissolved. And not only does he start to perceive spiritual realities, the people around start to perceive spiritual realities. Did you notice that? And not only do the people around, but everybody who hears about it starts to perceive spiritual realities. They wonder, what could this be? What could this child be? He's going to be one who lays flat the hills, that straightens the pathway and makes a way for the coming of the Lord. Makes way for the good news. And people are saying, I wonder what this child's going to be. They're ready to receive the good news. In fact, it says that this one will come and, and it, get, it prophesies all these things that he's going to do that is Elijah-like. So by saying this soul yes, where he had said a soul no, these pathways are opened up not only for himself, but for his son, and not only for his son, but those around, and not only for those around, but those who hear, and not only for those who hear back then, but those who are hearing right now as we speak. Right now. So is there a cure? And the answer is yes. And we're going to talk more about that yes next week as we focus on Mary's soul, yes. And contrast, compare and contrast. It's a Venn diagram. Okay. For now, I'd like to go ahead and ask our singers and the band and the servers and ushers to get in place. And if there are, you have notes, you can set them off to the side and you can close your Bibles. I just want you to be able to think clearly and give some attention here for a moment. If you have uh, concerns about something else other than this moment I'd like for you to try your best and I know how these things can be to set those aside for a moment and just ready yourself to receive something from the Lord here okay um, 
fact, you might even just do something with your body. I mean, maybe even just sit up straight. Maybe put your hands palm up on your knees. It doesn't have to be anything that you make a big deal about, something that has a sign of reception, something that says, I'm open to you, Lord. And then I want to address something here. I want to address this. I want to address this objection that may be in the back of your mind that is this. If an angel shows up to me and says, I'm Gabriel, I will say yes. This is unusual circumstances you are describing, and they should not be applied to me. Unless Gabriel shows up, in which case I will say yes. I will not say, let this, how can this come to pass in me? I have learned my lesson, so I'm ready for when Gabriel shows up. Thank you. here's a few things that I'd, I'd like to say. And I can say these about you without knowing anything about you. I know a lot of you. Don't know everybody. I don't have to know everything about you to say these things. God has a vision for your life. He has a vision for your life when you were created as sure as he had a vision for John the Baptist's life when he was created. As sure as he had a vision for Zechariah's old age, he has a vision for your life, for your right now and your old age. A vision of you that you were meant to be when he created you. That vision is good. That vision is for your prosperity. Not for your harm. Now that vision has been twisted and maybe even destroyed by the fall, by your own sin. It is, but, 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 but it has never been forgotten by God. Therefore, because that vision, that, 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 that vision that he had of you, that you that he made, since it's been crumpled up and twisted and torn and beat down and turned into nothing by your own sin, by the sin of the world, all those kinds of things, for Jesus to come and say, come, come, come as you are. You are my child. I'm going to restore the vision that I had for you. Okay. You understand that's impossible. That's impossible for anybody but God. That vision of you cannot be restored by anyone but the one who had that vision. It is fundamentally impossible. Resurrection from the dead is fundamentally impossible, right? God has no visions for your life that are not above what we can ask or think. All the visions that God has for your life are impossible. And don't go thinking that what I'm saying is you're going to do something that's going to make you famous. It's going to be something that's going to be this huge thing that all these folks are going to... No, 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 no. We've said this many, many times. The people that have had the most impact in this life, I'm sure we don't know their names. And when we get to heaven, I think it's going to be the superstars are going to be folks that we have not heard of before. So I'm not trying to say what that vision is. I'm not saying what God has for you. I don't know what those things are. And I'm not saying that they're going to be huge, giant things in our eyes. But remember what was said. Remember what was said. 
when the angel prophesied to Zechariah about his son John, it said, he will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Why? For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Do you understand that's real greatness? Who cares if you're great in the sight of men? Who cares? That's not greatness. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. And the vision that God had for you, sister, the vision that God had for you, brother, is that you would be great in his eyes. Great in his eyes. So you and I are regularly faced with situations like the one we see in Luke 1. A soul, yes, is a yes to the impossible vision that God has for your life that God has for your legacy. Read recently about a theologian named Don Carson who wrote a book about his parents who were, um, his father was a pastor in Canada. And um, he said, I don't know if there was ever a convert in their church the whole time. I don't know if it ever grew. I don't know if any of the trappings of success came to them. It didn't seem like it. But they were great in the eyes of the Lord. And he wrote this whole book to testify to the greatness of their ministry. There was a great great preacher in England named Charles Spurgeon who because it snowed, he went to a different church one Sunday morning. He thought he was a Christian, but then he heard this nameless preacher preach and he sat in the back of the, of the room. His name is lost. The preacher's name is lost to history. But Spurgeon was converted and all that came from that man's sermon. He was great in the eyes of the Lord. God wants to restore who he says you are in you. And he wants to do that in Jesus by the power of his spirit. So as we come to sing the song together and as we come to take this, uh, this bread and this juice together, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, these ushers will come. You'll be asked to come forward. You don't have to be a member of this church. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you come forward and break of that bread put it in the juice. As you take it that, you'll be reminded this is the body of Christ that's been broken for you. This is the blood of Christ that's been spilled for you. Now, I'm saying something about you. This is what Jesus is saying. This is why he instituted it with his disciples, you and I included, is that I'm saying something about you that is impossible. You are alive and you will live forever with me. Though you will die, though your body will die, you will live forever with me. And this you do in remembrance of that life that is fundamentally impossible. And I want you to say yes to it today. When you get up and you take of this bread and we have this tradition of somebody looking in your face, somebody looking in your eyes and saying, this is the body of Christ that's broken for you. I want you to say yes. This is the blood of Christ that's been spilled for you. I want you to say yes. Yes. Receive that resurrection. And if you need to come and lay some no's down, come on and lay them down. If you need to come and say, I've let some other voices, I've said yes to a lot of other voices, and I don't want to say yes to those voices anymore about who I am, you come down here, bend the knee. If you need to do something to get that 
moving and happening, come on down. Somebody will pray with you, but say yes to him today. Say yes to him for the first time. Those pathways will start to open up. Those pathways will start to open up. And who knows what the Lord will do? Y'all, if we say yes, let's take this meal together and sing in Jesus' name.